When we look out at the universe, we can see all sorts of things out there. We can measure not only stars, but also gas, dust, black holes, plasma, and all the forms of normal matter that are out there in the universe. We can see this in galaxies. We can see this outside of galaxies. We can even measure the sum total of everything that isn't even just made of protons, neutrons, and electrons, but all of the particles in the standard model. We can look at galaxies and clusters of galaxies and the large-scale structure of the universe, and what we find when we look at all the stuff out there in the universe and all the gravity out there in the universe is they don't match up. Somehow, the amount of mass that's out there is about six times as much as all the matter that's out there. That's where the idea of dark matter comes from. But what is dark matter? What don't we know about it? And what are we doing to try and find out? Come get the full story on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. If you want to know what's out there in the universe, you need to look at it in every way you can. And sometimes when we look at the light that's out there and we look at the gravitational effects of what's out there, they don't always match up. That's a puzzle, but it's also a feature because it's a tremendous opportunity for discovery. And here to help us untangle it, I'm so pleased to welcome to the show astrophysics PhD candidate, fashionista, and astropartigirl, i.e. astroparticle physicist, Sophia Godnasser. Sophia, I'm so pleased to have you here, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. I'm really happy to be here as well. You know, this is... Uh... For me, dark matter was one of these incredible mysteries where when I first started learning about it, I was like, oh, that can't be right. And then when I started learning about all the indirect evidence for dark matter, I started to realize, wow, there really isn't any way to avoid this that doesn't just ignore huge amounts of cosmology and enormous data sets. When you first learned about dark matter, did you have a similar reaction? So uh, when I when I first learned about dark matter, for me, it was more kind of like, um, oh my goodness, so there's like another side to the universe that we can't see. And it just kind of opened my mind up in a different way. So that was where my where my reaction went was to this sort of awe because I'm also like I, I also like love fantasy and and sci-fi and stuff like that. So this was kind of like giving a little bit of reality to that for me. <laughs> so it began that way. The questioning happened after I actually started to work with it. You know, I I always sort of wondered about dark matter, you know. I looked at it like it's the ultimate detective story, because on one hand, um, if we go out and we look for it, we can't see it directly. But we have all of this evidence that's indirect of all these different things it affects. We have so many different independent measurements we can make that show us, okay, there's 
got to be more out there creating gravitation in the universe, clustered and clumped together where the normal matter is, and also in some places where the normal matter isn't in this five to one ratio. And on large scales, that five to one ratio seems to be everywhere. You add just this one ingredient and you can explain all of these different observations from the large scale structure of the universe to the fluctuations in the cosmic microwave background to individual galaxy clusters and the bending of space they cause to colliding galaxy clusters to interacting pairs of galaxies and so much more. And so I don't really see a way unless we have a whole lot of things wrong that just remarkably cancel out in all of these other ways. I don't really see a way to create a universe that gives us what we observe without adding either dark matter or something that at some level is indistinguishable from dark matter to it. Yeah, exactly. I would, I would agree as well. Like you can't, you can't, you know, I mean, so, you know, things like modified Newtonian gravity can do things like explain rotation curves, but that's, as you just mentioned, not the only source of evidence that we have. We also have it encoded in the cosmic microwave background and, you know, and, um, and in gravitational lensing and all and, and all these things. And so just because modified gravity can explain the rotation curves on, on its own, it can't explain what we see in the cosmic microwave background. And um, I think even like the more successful versions of the mo of modified gravity end up needing to add matter like dark matter anyway. So you need to add, like add some extra matter anyway. So what they end up doing is complicate equations all to end up adding matter back. So it's like, we probably have a better picture of it without all that, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that I don't know if uh, non-scientists appreciate as much as scientists working in the field do, is that if you have a series of unexplained measurements and you can and you can add one new ingredient or make one modification to have everything fall in line, that is so much more compelling than making multiple modifications to have everything fall in line. And can you, can you maybe tell us a little bit about why that is, about why if you have all these different things and you're just like, okay, I'm going to make one change instead of I'm just going to make two or three changes why is it so much better to fix it all with one change than with multiple changes? Well, because, I mean, the moment that we start making multiple changes, we can actually explain anything that we want in almost any way that we want. Because if I, if I like, you know, sort of tune a specific parameter to look like, okay, this should be like in this region, and this should be in this region, and this should be in this region, and I'm, and I'm tuning like all these different little things... I mean, it doesn't even matter really at the end of the day, like what model I have, because I'm already fine tuning it. And so I can do, I can almost use maybe not any model, but you can use almost any model that you want to, to explain some phenomena. So you're kind of like guiding it to, to explain it to you. Is that, if that makes sense, like you're guiding it to the explanation rather than letting it guide you to the explanation. Yeah, I forget who it was, but I remember somebody once said, like, if you give me a four-parameter model, I can fit that to an elephant. And if you give me a fifth parameter, I can make him wiggle his trunk. That is, <laughs> that's actually really, really, really cool. I, I, I haven't heard that, but 
I like that because yeah. that's that's yeah. And and this is this is I think a key thing is what we're looking for. What we're trying to do is we're trying to make the most minimal modifications possible to the universe to try and explain everything that we see. So if I can add one new ingredient, right? What I want to do ideally is if I want to be a good detective, ideally I would say I would go make a model that has one new ingredient of a certain type and simulate my universe and see what I get out. And then I would make a model with a different new ingredient and simulate my universe. So you make all your different models, right? You make say, okay, I'm going to say, what if dark matter is like this? Or what if there's a new ingredient like that? Or what if I change the laws of gravity like this, right? You make all your different models of what you can modify. And then you go out and you compare it with all these different measurements, right? You run your simulations and you say, well, if things worked like this, what would my galaxies look like? What would my clusters of galaxies look like? What would happen when two clusters of galaxies collided and the normal matter smashed together and emitted x-rays? What would gravity look like in this situation? And you ask, what would the cosmic microwave background look like? And what would the large-scale cosmic web in the universe look like? And when we do all of this, we learn something remarkable. If you want one ingredient to fit everything, the one ingredient that overwhelmingly fits better than all the others is what we call cold collisionless dark matter, which is to say that you need something that has a mass, has a non-zero rest mass, was born cold, which means it is moving at non-relativistic speeds from very early time, and that has a negligible, as far as we can tell, interaction cross-section with itself, with normal matter, and with light. It's probably not correct to call it dark matter, because it's not dark in the sense where it absorbs light. It's rather invisible matter, that dark matter is transparent to just about everything. But we see these telltale gravitational effects that are consistent, really, with that and only that, unless you're going to add multiple ingredients. Yes, um... And yes, so cold dark matter is overwhelmingly the most successful model that explains things on large scales. But even when we look at cold dark matter and we start to zoom in, we also find problems. And this, this I think, is where it gets really interesting, right? Because we always say the devil is in the details, but also the secret is in the details, right? Correct. Yes, and so um, all and cold and you know cold dark matter is it's. That's something that we require no matter what. Like, dark matter has to be cold. It has to have been non-relativistic at early times in order to form the structure that we see today. If it's, if it's a bit warm, then, you know, you get, you, you destroy small structures. And so, um, you don't get to see all the fine details that we see in our universe today if it's, if it's like that. So it does have to be cold. But while, while cold dark matter explains the universe incredibly well on large scales if we start to zoom in and look at like our smaller dwarf galaxies like the satellites that orbit the milky way for example we find that if we make these with cold collisionless dark matter we have problems because there's just too much mass falling into the centers whereas observations tell us that these galaxies for the most part actually don't have that much mass so their density is pretty low 
in in the centers. Right. And this is this is, I know, uh, an active area of research, because as I understand it, there are a few leading thoughts on this. One of them is um, one of them is this idea that, okay, maybe it's because this dark matter will even if it only interacts gravitationally, it should experience something called dynamical heating, right? So this is where, okay, we have normal matter, which does interact with itself. If my left hand is a particle of normal matter, and my right hand is a particle of normal matter, and I bring them together, that they'll splat. They'll splat together, which means they, they will have what we call an inelastic collision. Normal matter can bind together, exchange momentum and energy, and, and it can actually stick together. You can get some level of stickiness with normal matter, which is great for us because it means we can form stars and planets and human beings and all this interesting stuff in the universe. But when you form these stars, right, the stars emit radiation. The radiation blows matter away out of the galaxy. And what it does is it changes the mass distribution in the center of the galaxy where the normal matter is. So there's this idea that some people have that maybe as this mass moves around, it exerts a differing gravitational force on the dark matter around it. And that's going to I guess the best way I'd put it is it's going to smooth out what would originally be a cuspy profile at the center. So that's sort of one leading idea. But other people argue, even if you do that, I don't think you can get enough of it. So maybe dark matter isn't this ultra-simple model of a collisionless cold dark matter. Maybe there's something else going on, either... You can throw a second parameter in, or you can throw a new coupling in, but the idea is that you can use the observations we have to try and reconstruct backwards what are these properties of dark matter that could reproduce what we observe on these small scales. Yes, exactly. And so... Um... And so once once we turn on what we, we kind of like turn on these self interactions. And so um, that just means that dark matter particles no longer are collisionless, but they are allowed to interact. And anything that any interaction that occurs, like any types of interactions require a mediator. And so if we do have dark matter, dark matter particle self interactions, then that requires a force that we've not yet discovered because it would not it would not fit any of the ranges of the forces that we that we know. And so, um, yeah. <laughs> no, because you're basically talking about, look, it definitely can't be the strong force uh, because if dark matter had a color charge, we would know. And it can't be an electromagnetic force because if dark matter coupled to a photon, we would know. And although there are some people who work on dark matter that does interact through the weak interaction, like the weak force that causes radioactive decay, we know that if dark matter does couple to the weak interaction, it has to be many millions of times weaker than even the neutrino, the most invisible particle that we are sure exists, has to normal matter. So when we talk about some type of dark matter with an interaction, either 
it has an extraordinarily weak coupling constant compared to everything else that couples to one of these forces, or it's an entirely new force altogether. And one of the things that I know people have been exploring for some time is what if there is a new force that only occurs between dark matter particles? Exactly. And so that we kind of, I guess, dub as like a dark force or let's say, you know, depending on what model that is, you can have a dark photon. So it would be kind of like the dark analog to to the uh, standard models, electromagnetic force. And so um, and so like, you know, at, the, at this point, I guess a lot of people are probably thinking like, hang on a second. So like if it's a dark force and dark matter also has, you know, we, we have we have problems detecting this. And when are we ever going to detect it? Well, I mean, the mediator might couple to the standard model, for example. So if even if dark matter does it itself doesn't couple to the standard model, the forces that that um, that mediate their its interactions might. Yeah, and and this is an important possibility to keep in mind, right? Because what we it's just like the way we know about dark matter. The way we know about dark matter is not because we've detected dark matter particles and we're like, "Aha, that's what has to be there." We know there's dark matter there or something currently indistinguishable from dark matter from the indirect observations we make because we observe matter and light and things like cross sections and interactions and fluxes and intensities from over different wavelength ranges and like we have all of this evidence that we go back and it allows us to reconstruct what's in the universe so now what you're saying is well let's add another ingredient in or let's add a twist to this ingredient well what if we have dark matter particles that can clump or cluster together? What if there is a mediator, a force mediator for it? What would that particle's properties be allowed to be? And would there be some incarnations of this that would lead to an observable signature, either in a particle collider or a dedicated direct detection experiment or any other clever apparatus or setup that we can imagine and concoct? And this, I think, is really interesting because this is directly related to something that you research, which is this notion of self-interacting dark matter. Yes, and so self-interacting dark matter, if it does, if dark matter particles do interact with each other, then we do require this, this dark force. And it's actually a little bit, it's a little bit cooler than just that, um, because it would actually have a velocity dependence. And we know this because if you use one cross-section to, for example, describe a dwarf galaxy, and then you use the same one to try to describe a, a like a galaxy cluster, which galaxy clusters are pretty happy being cuspy, okay? They have no problems being cuspy. So once you do that, you actually turn the cusp into a core, so you basically flatten it out, and it no longer represents galaxy clusters. So, you know, as we say, if we're trying to fix one thing, we can't break another. And so the, the one thing that would actually, would actually solve this is if we had a velocity-dependent cross-section, one that where, where like increasing velocity means decreasing cross-section. So the higher your velocity is, the smaller your cross-section. It's similar to like Rutherford scattering. 
Yeah, and this is this is kind of interesting because it is extremely counterintuitive. One of uh, one of the simplest things you can sort of do is you can say, okay, if I'm going to take a particle and I'm going to fire it into anything, anything where other particles exist, then what is the collision rate going to be? And it's always going to be something where it's proportional to the number density of particles multiplied by the cross-section of each particle multiplied by the speed that your particle is moving relative to whatever it's moving through. So basically, if you are moving through a denser thing, the bigger the density, the more particles there are going to be for you to run into. And the bigger the cross-section of these particles, the bigger the chance of having an interaction you're going to be. And the faster you're moving through this medium, basically the more particles you're going to pass in a given amount of time. So you multiply these three things together, and sometimes there's a constant and sometimes there's not, and that gives you your collision rate. But what you're saying is, well, if we did that naive thing, it doesn't work. You don't get the right answer. So what you need instead is something where the faster you go, the lower your cross-section is. Somehow, it's almost like you have to scale out that velocity dependence, which is, which is pretty weird. We don't have a whole lot of particles that really do that with, uh, with standard collisions, do we? Yeah, I mean, like for example, it is it is definitely counterintuitive because you would think that you know when you uh, when you get faster velocities, you're passing more more particles, meaning your rate would increase. But that's just not the case. And like one example of that would be would be Rutherford scattering, which goes like I think one over the velocity raised to the fourth power. Because, you know, now we're talking about, oh, right, what we're doing is we're taking, it's sort of like if you took a, uh, if you took a very small thing and you fired it very slowly into like a bed sheet, um, it's easily going to be stopped by the bed sheet. It's going to hit the bed sheet and you'll, you'll notice it gets stopped. But if you took something like a bullet and you fired it at the bed sheet, it's going to go right through the bed sheet. So the faster you go, basically the less stopping power this thing is going to have. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes That makes a lot of sense. Um, is that, is that really why it happens though? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not I don't sure. think that's why it happens. I think it's really the interactions. Hmm. Like I, 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 I agree. Like I, I totally see what, what, what you mean with that. But um. Yeah, because I think everything else is a constant that you get a cross section. But yeah, but it's the cross section of scattering <laughs> at a bigger angle than a certain angle. So you really have to like, you know, I think what happens is as your energy goes up, um. You're basically just going to keep moving with that same momentum um, mm -hmm. unless you happen to hit that atomic nucleus directly, directly face on because it's the nucleus that's going to deflect you, right? But that's, yes. but that's what you're saying is that cross-section of the nucleus, it, it's like it looks smaller and smaller and smaller the faster you're moving because – you know, you have to be more and more precise to hit it dead on to to deflect at a significant angle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so that's and I guess that that's that's the 
the, mo- the, the counterintuitive part is like, why is it then that my interaction cross-section decreases? So why, why, why is it now smaller? Like, why is my chance of hitting this thing smaller because I'm going fast, right? And so, um, but yeah, that's, how, that's, that's, that's what it is. And that's and that makes sense because when you have you know if I'm like okay I'm gonna take the smallest low mass lowest mass galaxies I know of something like uh, like the tiny dwarf galaxy in our own backyard uh, Segway three or Segway one if you like these are both very very small low mass galaxies and I say okay how fast are the stars moving around in here and it's only like a few tens, a few tens of kilometers per second, which means that, oh, there's really not a whole lot of gravitational pull here. If something starts moving faster than that, it's going to get kicked out of the galaxy and then we won't see it anymore. So um, you're really limited to these low speeds. So you know that dark matter particles, if they're gravitationally bound, they have to be moving at these low speeds. Whereas if you get a really big galaxy or a really massive cluster of galaxies, you can have things moving at hundreds or even thousands of kilometers per second in this galaxy or in this cluster of galaxies. And in order to reproduce what you observe on all those scales, you need to heavily suppress that interaction cross-section because like you say, on the large scales, cold and collisionless is just fine. So you need some way to make those effective collisions or that effective cross-section basically go away when you are, you know, moving at high speeds, but at low speeds, that's where it seems to matter. And that's also interesting because that seems to be where modified Newtonian dynamics is claiming that their effects are most important is in these regions where you have not necessarily very, very small velocities, but extremely small accelerations, which, you know, in this case are typically caused by the gravitational force. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, but I mean, I think I, I think, and this is this is this is really important because um, we're talking about like self-interacting dark matter in as though the only thing that the profile depends on is the um, is the is the the fact that the cross section is velocity dependent. But the weird thing about this stuff is because it also in in its potential it kind of encodes the baryonic mass as well. So the baryons, like the potential of the baryons, are already encoded into the potential in self-interacting dark matter. And so you can actually get get galaxies like spiral galaxies that are denser than than like the the you know standard cold dark matter uh profile would do which we use um typically a you know a, a, um an NFW profile which is like named after these three um physicists Navarro, Frank and White. Um and so yeah, and I, I think it's really and this is something we, that's called the diversity problem. My advisor worked on that. Is that you? You actually do see rotation curves in spiral galaxies that look very different. They're not self-similar, so you can't say that. Okay, if I take these two parameters and fit them to this galaxy, any galaxy that is of this mass or of this type should look the same, because that's not the case. We see that that's not the case. We have very diverse, diverse um, um, velocity curves across them. And self-interacting dark matter can actually capture that, whereas cold dark matter 
profiles can't because they don't have enough parameters for that. Yeah, uh, to give people a little bit of context about this, um, back in the mid 90s or so, these three scientists, uh, Navarro, Frank and White, um, who are all very famous physicists in their own right, um, they collaborated together and ran a bunch of simulations of dark matter collapsing under its own gravity on various scales of various masses to form, you know, whatever they form. And what they found regardless of how massive it is or regardless of what the initial parameters of it are, is if dark matter is cold and collisionless, you get what's sort of a universal profile where you form this spherical halo of dark matter where you know, as you come in from the outside, the density rises and rises and rises at a particular rate. And then you reach what they call a turnover radius. And instead of rising at that same rate, it takes like a bend. The curve takes a bend downward and it still continues to rise, but at a less steep rate until you get to the center. And the densest point is in the center. And people have known, even since that was proposed, like, yes, lots of people have made universal profiles and run simulations, and there are small, detailed arguments about what should the exact power law of these two regimes be above and below the turnover radius. Um, none of them actually match our observations, because what we find instead is the data is much better fit by something that we would call an isothermal profile, which is what you get when you take like a hot gas and you allow everything to collide together and reach equilibrium. But dark matter, if it only interacts gravitationally, it can't reach equilibrium. You need some other sort of interaction or you need some, you know, some other parameter. You need something else coming in to uh, to sort of account for this. And so everyone knows that NFW profile or the Moore profile or some some sort of very similar profile is what you get if dark matter is purely cold and collisionless and it doesn't work for individual galaxies and it really, really doesn't work for these small individual galaxies. And this is sort of that big question of why. Either, well, look, these NFW profiles, they don't include normal matter and gas and star formation and feedback and dynamical heating and all these other effects. And maybe there is some astrophysical explanation that that could do it. Or dark matter isn't purely cold and collisionless and there is some interaction or there is some extra ingredient or there is some extra coupling and if we measure and quantify on all these different scales how does dark matter depart from this cold collisionless profile we would expect there is some sort of hope that we can reconstruct oh well here are the sets of couplings that are allowed, and then could we go and design an experiment to test this out somehow? Can we make a prediction that's distinct from, say, the dynamical heating prediction or the NFW alone prediction? And is there something new we could go out to measure to discern between these models? 
Yeah, and I think um, one of the things that you mentioned in there was really important about the equilibrating. Like, you need to have some sort of interaction or something to be able to do that. And if and for like for scattering, so like for self-interacting dark matter, it's the scattering itself that allows an exchange of of kinetic energy and such. And that's how that's how you get like initially you'll have dark matter particles interacting a lot in the center, and that's because the center is the most dense in the beginning. <laughs> and then it kicks out a lot of the matter, so because that, that part starts to interact, so it kicks out a lot of the matter, pushes it out, and that's how you end up with a flattened or a less dense um, central region. But so, so can I ask you this? Because this is something that, uh, that you probably know the answer to, but I don't, and it's troubled me about self-interacting dark matter, is that the place where the probability of a collision should be highest would be in the centers of these galaxies where the velocities are the lowest. So this would be where things are moving the slowest. And if that's where you get the greatest numbers of collisions and you can exchange energy and momentum from those collisions, then why if these are the slowest collisions that have, you know, that occur the most frequently, why would that kick dark matter particles out of the inner region of the galaxy if they're all moving slowly? Why wouldn't it just, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Why wouldn't it just virialize them? Why wouldn't it just sort of smooth that distribution out? Ooh, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty loaded question. <laughs> um, okay, so... There, there is a, there is a, there is a slight gradient. This is true. I mean, we, we, you know, when we plot our, when we plot our velocity curves, we, there's the central region has it, it drops. Um, the interacting region for dark matter, though, is typically like, I guess, depending on which, what type of galaxy we're talking about. Like, I mean, um, in clusters, we're, I don't know, like maybe of order like a couple of or a few kpc. Which is still pretty big, um, and so I don't know how much of that is going to be moving super slow. So, and as these interactions kind of um, proceed, like what's happening is that the region is kind of also growing, and so of interactions. So you have uh, you have um, you know interactions kind of like moving out. So you start we start off I think in a in a long mean free path mean free path regime you can end up in a short mean free path though um and mind you a lot of a lot of this stuff is although <laughs> although i seem like an expert i don't know all of <laughs> i don't know everything i have so much more to learn about this stuff it's incredible but like so um so i guess i guess i guess maybe i guess part of of these Particles like I mean I, I even when we when we model it we kind of just use a velocity dispersion because typically we're talking about galaxies that aren't disks. Right, right. So you're talking about like I I when I say when someone says rotation curve I think spiral galaxy. When someone says velocity dispersion I think okay this is more like a beehive instead of like having all your stars 
be in a plane and you have a plane of rotation and a like and a clear axis here or like a clear plane where the stars and the matter are located you have more like a swarm where things can move in all these different directions and you get these these wild like elliptical orbits that are sort of omnidirectional so i picture like an elliptical galaxy except way beyond this elliptical galaxy you have an ellipsoidal or spheroidal halo um where everything sort of like okay on the if you were to follow any one dark matter particle it would make likely a pretty elongated ellipse where it would plunge towards the center and swing back around and for a big dark matter halo like a halo for something you know that's a big massive galaxy in the virgo cluster let's say uh it might take uh on the order of a few hundred million years or maybe even a billion years for a single dark matter particle to complete a full orbit but in these much smaller structures that might only be a few thousand light years in size which you know segway one and three fall into and the galaxies you mentioned that are of kpc size kpc is a kiloparsec and it's a a little over 3,000 light years, um, you're talking about, okay, now we're looking at time scales that are much shorter. So instead of taking, you know, a billion years to do it, where maybe you only get a few handfuls of them happening over the age of the universe, now you're talking about hundreds or thousands of plunges through the inner regions of the galaxy. And if you're moving slower, I can see where, yeah, you'd have a different cross-section and you'd get a different density profile for your galaxy than you will for the big guys. Yes, exactly. So now, you, yeah, what you just mentioned right now was was that that was the key is that is the elliptical orbit. So they have this like sort of crossing time, and um, you know when you kind of swing by close to the inner potential, and then you get flung out, you will pick up pick up your velocity in in, in that in that sort of interaction. And yes, the time scales on smaller in smaller galaxies are going to be a lot smaller. Well, that's that's pretty fascinating. I do wonder what sort of cross-sections are allowable and if these different cross-sections and cross-section profiles lead to any consequences that differ from what, you know, standard cosmology with standard collisionless cold dark matter predicts on either larger scales or for some type of collapsed object that may be observable. Because one of the things that people always think about when you do put some sort of self-interaction in there with dark matter is, okay, well, can you then make bound dark matter structure and i don't necessarily mean things like dark atoms and dark planets and dark stars and dark human beings i mean something like can you have any cosmic structure that would lend itself towards an observable signal that's differentiable from what we would get if we only had purely cold collisionless dark matter so i guess you're meaning like sort of like little dark matter clumps for example well, that's that's one thing, and I know that um, things like um, 
gravitational lensing experiments mm -hmm. can do excellent work revealing that in fact we had uh, Anna Nirenberg on the podcast about a year ago and she she explained that to us at length about how you can use specifically quadruple gravitational lenses to probe dark matter substructure and just like you would with something like the Lyman Alpha Forest which measures how much light from a distant quasar is absorbed by intervening clouds of hydrogen gas, you can use that lensing idea to sort of put meaningful constraints on how warm or cold dark matter is allowed to be. And what we find is the hot and to some extent the warm models, they don't fit the data. But if you're colder than a certain amount, you do fit. However, um, you kind of have to at that point say, okay, there's a limit to how self-interacting dark matter could be, or once again, in a different way, my observations might disagree with that. Yeah, and um, I, I actually know Anna pretty well. She was a postdoc at UC Irvine before she went over to NASA. And um, yes, she's like the queen of gravitational lensing. She's amazing at this stuff, and... Um, and indeed, yeah, like like the gravitational lensing can give us a lot of information about about like dark matter and what its properties can be. And funny funny enough, one of the recent papers that I was on with um, with uh, the lead the lead the lead uh, author was Quinn Miner, was about this one halo that we see because of gravitational lensing and nothing else. So there's like I think it's like a um, it has a mass of like, what ten to the, it was it ten to the ten or ten to the ten to the eleven ish somewhere ten to the ten to ten to ten to the eleven, um, is is the mass of this halo, and we see no light at all. So the only thing the only way that it's detected is because of the lensing that is caused around it. So it's like it's it's perturbing stuff, but you can't see the perturber, <laughs> and for that kind of a mass, in order for that to be true, we'd have to have like less than 10 to the 8 10 to the 8 uh, solar masses worth of of stars in that galaxy or in that in that little clump and so that's pretty weird you know and and so like that that, that might be evidence of one of these kind of clumps yeah that's that's pretty fascinating and and do you mind if i try and translate that into english so that uh maybe our <laughs> listeners who aren't astrophysicists can uh can sort of be like oh yeah that's what's going on so normally when we look at a big galaxy like something like the milky way you'll say okay um we have a certain number of stars in here in our milky way it's somewhere between about 200 and 400 billion and then you'll say which is you know a few times 10 to the 11 and then you say okay and how massive does our dark matter halo need to be to accommodate what we see based on its distribution and its uh, extent in space and you get something that's more or less a factor of five in mass bigger than the total baryonic mass so you might have a few hundred billion stars and you might have a few trillion solar masses of dark matter you put all this together and that's a milky way size galaxy and the milky way isn't like exactly typical but it's not that far out of the ordinary it's certainly in the range of what's normal what you're asserting and i'm not disputing this in any way but what you're saying is out there is there's a galaxy or there's a clump of matter out there 
that has about 100 billion solar masses of mass all told. So it's smaller than the Milky Way, which is the second largest galaxy in the local group behind Andromeda, but it's bigger and more massive than the Triangulum Galaxy, which is the third most massive galaxy in the local group. However, whereas the Triangulum Galaxy has something like 10 billion stars in it, this galaxy can have at most like 1% of what the Triangulum Galaxy has. So somehow we've got something that has this large mass, more mass than the third largest galaxy in the local group, but less than 1% of the stars. So somehow we've got what it sounds like is a big clump of dark matter with almost no baryonic matter in it. Exactly. Exactly. So how do you get that? That sounds unusual. Yeah, exactly. It does sound very unusual. And so that's, <laughs> that's part of the reason why this was such an interesting question to us. I, I would ask you for the answer, but I assume you don't have it other than to say, you know, if you consider self-interacting dark matter, that is a way to help resolve this, hmm, we don't expect this, but it exists, versus something like, okay, well, normally um, I can imagine I could have collisions, I could have tidal events, but those gravitational forces, they tend to destroy structures from the outside in. Somehow we ended up with a clump of dark matter that had the baryonic matter stripped out of it. The only way we typically know of to do that is through a rapid burst of star formation that would expel a large fraction of gas because the dark matter wasn't gravitationally strong enough to hang on to it. But that couldn't have happened here, otherwise there would be a large population of stars inside. So. I think that's that's an excellent clue that we have to fold into the detective story when we're asking what is dark matter, because you have to say, you know, somehow it's possible to make an object like this, which has significant mass and enormous amount of dark matter and no stars down to this limit that is really bizarre that we just wouldn't get if dark matter were cold and collisionless purely. Yes, exactly. And and this this uh this clump actually is like incredibly concentrated. Its concentr its concentration is really high, which is just to say that it's like I guess like the concentration kind of tells you when in history it was born, like when in, when this galaxy was formed. So like higher concentrations means that it was formed earlier in the universe, and that has to do with um with this sort of spherical overdensity um that kind of increases with with time as as the universe um or the expansion accelerates and um and so it has this really incredibly high concentration that not even cold dark matter can explain and this is the weird part okay cuz remember that we we introduced self-interacting dark matter to be able to explain why we see galaxies that are small that aren't super dense in the center but this mechanism that happens with self-interacting dark matter is that what you you know when when you have these these interactions going on in the center and it and it's you know it's it's kicking it's kicking basically you know ma mass out as well as as well as kinetic energy 
So you're losing kinetic energy, meaning that your your stars or, or excuse me, your dark matter starts to slow down. And then what happens then? It reverses and then it starts to contract. So you can actually end up with a dark matter halo that's far denser than what cold dark matter, cold collisionless dark matter can produce. And so and this is actually something that we call core collapse. And so this this galaxy might be or this halo might be something that's undergoing core collapse. I see. So you might be catching something in the act of transitioning from the way most galaxies are to the way that a few galaxies will become. Yes. Yes. Now that's that's pretty fascinating. Um, you know, there are a lot of different models. I know when you when you throw a non-zero cross section in to dark matter, you you can argue you're adding a different parameter. But what you're really doing is you're saying, okay, I'm looking at what fits the overwhelming majority of the data, and then I'm looking at the part where it doesn't fit as well. And I will fess up immediately that if you modified gravity in the way that they do in modified Newtonian dynamics, if all we had were individual low mass galaxies in the universe, um, if that were the only thing we were looking at, I would probably conclude that modified Newtonian dynamics is much, much better solution than cold collisionless dark matter. But like we talked about earlier, it isn't. We have a whole suite of evidence. So either you can start with modified Newtonian dynamics and build up a relativistically covariant model, and you can um, add in some ingredient that on large scales acts exactly like dark matter at early times and evolves till late times. And then, yeah, you can do that. But you can also say, well, look, I assume that dark matter is a particle because it clumps like a particle and it behaves like a particle with a mass. Um, and so now I'm going to ask what properties does this particle have? And instead of just saying, well, none, it has no properties other than it has a mass and that's it. Uh, you can say, okay, what's going to result from saying I want to fit the data? And the answer might be a self-interacting dark matter. But if you interact too much, or if you interact um, especially at low velocities, wouldn't you worry about what that would imply for the uh, densest objects? Wouldn't you worry about what that would imply for things like supermassive black holes, or what that would imply for something that occurs at the very centers of things like dwarf galaxies or globular clusters or even larger galaxies? Yeah, so you, you actually touched upon another unanswered question in cosmology and astrophysics, and that's how supermassive black holes formed in the first place. Like, as you know, we just, just um, in 2019, we just imaged our first supermassive black hole, and that one has, it has a mass of 6 billion times the mass of the sun. And so one might think that since the universe has been around for 13.8 billion years, perhaps you had, you know, a bunch of stars collapse into black holes that merged and merged and merged and merged until they just accumulated, and of course, accreted mass at the same time. Uh, which means essentially that it just ate up mass, ate up ate up matter around it to kind of add to itself, and then you know became a supermassive black hole. The problem is that we see 
supermassive black holes about a billion times the mass of the sun only about 700 million years after the Big Bang. That's not nearly enough time to explain these things. And so even if we, if we use this, this um, sort of phenomenon called super Eddington accretion, which is essentially accretion that happens at a really, a, like a super, super like fast rate. So it happens like more and faster. And, and then if we, if, if we use this and then we try to see whether like a stellar mass black hole would even even one that's like say a hundred times the, the the mass of the sun, which we don't get, but we could have gotten in the past if uh, with with the population three stars. So these are the stars that like have no metals at all in them. Um, even if we start with something like that, and we we you know we we use super Eddington accretion after 700, 800 million years after the Big Bang, you're not going to get enough. Of, or, a, or a big enough or like a massive enough black hole to be able to explain how like or to or to be a seed for these for these supermassive black holes and so like um and so like we know we know that the, we, we know that that's not that's not how they're formed it can't it can't be from that and also i have to also point out that when we use like this super eddington accretion this is also ideal like things like this is assuming that you are you are accreting at that rate consistently without no pause, without any pause. But that's not what happens in nature, really. You're gonna you know you're gonna have blips here and there. Yeah. And so, yeah. I mean, yeah. when we when we talk about the Eddington rate, right? I, I want to be clear for people that when we talk about this growth rate of matter of black holes, um, Eddington accretion is supposed to be a limit. We call it the Eddington limit, which is to basically say if you have a clump of matter and you have matter falling into it, that matter is going to heat up, it's going to push back, and there is a maximum rate that matter can fall into something and cause it to grow. So what you need is you need continuously infalling matter to grow at the Eddington rate. So when you say super Eddington rate, you mean this is, look, there could be things at play that we haven't considered. There could be magnetic fields pushing something in a certain direction. There could be feedback that isn't working. There could be a lack of quenching, or there could be like some sort of accretion flow that is just coming in and feeding this thing forever and ever, maybe even at super Eddington, so at some rate above what the maximum theoretical rate ought to be. But this is also like, wow, even if we do this, we have black holes that are massive enough early enough that they would have to be significantly super Eddington by a factor of, of more than the number of fingers you have on a hand to reproduce what you see. So this question of how do black holes grow so big so fast, this is an open puzzle in astrophysics and cosmology today. Exactly. And so... Some of the some of the ideas are that you know maybe uh, maybe a, like a, a huge sort of cloud of gas in the early universe might have just kind of like a really massive one so like say like ten to the three or ten to the four so that's a thousand or ten thousand times the mass of the sun for example and just directly collapses into a black hole that's like one possibility but um, and that's and that can only happen very early in the universe because 
at that at that time we didn't have metals and what basically in astronomy metals are anything that aren't hydrogen or helium <laughs> yeah and so in that's fact, what do I, you uh do you know the tom lehrer song about the uh the elements of the periodic table which one you know there's hydrogen and helium beryllium of course yeah 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 lithium beryllium. <laughs> right right well um they made a joke out of this about 20 years ago at the University of Chicago, and they were singing to someone who worked on Big Bang nucleosynthesis, which is how you make the lightest elements in the universe, but you don't make any of the heavier ones. And it went, there's hydrogen and helium, deuterium and lithium, and hydrogen and helium, deuterium and lithium, and hydrogen and helium, <laughs> deuterium and lithium, because that's all you make in the Big Bang. Yeah, that's such an astronomer thing. That sounds that sounds like such an astronomer thing to do. <laughs> yeah, you and I are probably the only people listening to this podcast giggling about that at all. But that's fine. You guys, you guys can listen to an inside joke and just you know you can get it or not as you like. Unless unless there's an astronomer sitting out there, then they might either raise an eyebrow and say, hey, or they might just be like, I know, right? <laughs> yeah, but we do. We and, and I can't blame you as I can't blame the field, because if you say, OK, when the universe was born, it was what by mass? 75 percent hydrogen, 25 percent helium and point zero 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 one percent lithium and now when we look at the universe today we could say oh look how it's evolved it's like 70 percent hydrogen and 28 percent helium and one to two percent everything else combined so yeah massive changes but that one to two percent of everything else those are metals those are metals Yes, and those are actually those are the reason why we're we're around at all too. So we do need those metals. <laughs> yeah, we've got we've got a little bit of hydrogen in our bodies. If you count by number of atoms, hydrogen is the greatest number of atoms in our body by a lot. But if you count by mass, hydrogen is only about I want to say about ten to fifteen percent of our mass, and everything else is an astronomical metal. Yes, and that's why I like to say that we're not only star stuff, we're also Big Bang stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we're a little bit of Big Bang stuff, but that little bit is really important, that those hydrogen atoms are incredibly important for how things bond together, for the structure and functions of our bodies, of our biochemistry, and uh, you know, th make sure when you thank your lucky stars, you thank the biggest bang of them all, too. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, so getting back to the supermassive black hole question, right? Um, Self-interacting dark matter, if that's something that's out there, that can help this story, can't it? That can help bring the masses of these predicted black holes to higher levels. It can make them larger than they would be if you had just cold collisionless dark matter that didn't really contribute to these black holes at all. Right, exactly. And so um, I guess what, one thing that I, that I, that I want to finish, like the whole point of bringing up metals at all, um, was that the reason why these like sort of these massive clouds um, won't, won't directly collapse today is because today we have metals and metals cause cooling and cooling. If you have cooling in a gas cloud, then they break apart into smaller smaller chunks and then you end up with either you know the most incredibly massive stars or more likely the 
less massive ones, far less massive, massive than our own sun. But in the early universe, without, without that problem, perhaps direct collapse somehow, you know, led to maybe, you know, a hundred to a thousand times the mass of the sun type black holes. But, um, you require like Lyman, I think, what was it called? Lyman, Lyman alpha radiation. There's a specific, no, it's, it's, it's a specific radiation at like a specific energy at that time in order to like allow for this process to keep going on. And so it's like, that seems a bit fine tuned to me. But if we then look at self-interacting dark matter, this, this, this concept or this, um, this mechanism that I spoke of earlier, which was core collapse, then you can have essentially, you know, a dark matter halo that, that undergoes core collapse. So this is when, you know, after, after the particles have, have, um, interacted and pushed out mass and therefore have lost kinetic energy, energies in the center. So then, so that they kind of condense and get closer and then they keep condensing and they, and they contract until you have, um, until, until you get the sort of collapse into a, into a black hole. And then you'd end up with something more like, you know, 10,000 times the mass of the sun. And if we start with something like that, then we can, with super Eddington accretion, exceed 1 billion times the mass of the sun. You get like 10 billion times the mass of the sun, for example. And so we, we're all fine there. <laughs> and let me ask you, when you're talking about a 10,000 solar mass black hole, how early in the universe are you talking about forming this, either either in age or in redshift? And I'll, I'll happily do the conversion for you. Yeah, so I think that this is, I think this would have to be, because we always start at about 450 million years. So that's where, that's where you'd have to have, um, that's where your seed, your, your seed would have to begin. Is it about, at about 450? 50 million years after the Big Bang, I want to say. Oh, that's way late. That's much later than I thought you were going to say, because you can form, in theory, um, the very first stars, these population three stars, the stars that form directly from the pristine material from the Big Bang. Um, we've never detected them yet. We're all very hopeful that maybe the James Webb Space Telescope will get them. It's the best tool for the job, and it's one of the things I'm really looking forward to later this year. Um, but you can form, in theory, your very first generations of stars. Um, the very, very first ones that form might form only 50 to 100 million years after the Big Bang. And because of what we know about how inefficiently hydrogen and helium cool, in fact, I think it's going to be molecular hydrogen, H2, that forms, that's going to be responsible for the largest amount of cooling mm -hmm. in the absence of metals. Uh, instead of getting stars that go up to a few hundred solar masses, you might be able to get thousand solar mass stars. And those stars may undergo something like either a pair instability or a direct collapse. So you might be able to get 1,000 solar mass black holes um, as early as 100 million years or so into the age of the universe. And I wonder if that might be uh, a way to solve this supermassive black hole puzzle without resorting to um, something like a self-interacting dark matter. But I agree that self-interacting dark matter, that it can solve this problem, um, makes it a compelling candidate to consider. Yeah. Um, I also, I also want to, want to just, I want to kind of, um, I think if you want to push back on what I said, push back, you can do that. No, that's, 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 that's totally fine. It's just that once I, once I said the, the, like the, 
the age, I was like, wait, hang on a second. I don't know. Cause I feel like, I feel like we were, you know, when, when I, when I spoke with, um, when I, like when, when we spoke, when, when we, when we had our meetings, I think I remember, uh, the problem is that we talk about dimensionless time a lot. And so, <laughs> well, what, and, what and was like the figure relative... you used? If you remember, um, yeah, I would have to pull up the plots. So, uh, so we're following like, um, a paper by Nishikawa et al. Okay. And so, because we're trying, we're trying to reproduce this. And so, this is this is a really new project to me. And I might, I might make mistakes. So I might be wrong about the time. I want to make that clear. Well, that's okay. okay. You know, I'm, uh, I'm just some blogger who hasn't published a paper in a decade. Uh, so you know. I... <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah, that's. Um... I'm just, I'm just teasing there, people. <gasps> People who know will know what I'm talking about, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure they will. <laughs> I know what you're talking about too. It's uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, but uh, but I think it's it is it's worth considering. You know, when you have a new observation or a difficult to reconcile observation, what you want to do is you want to put forth a slew of possible explanations for it so that what you can do is you can say, okay, if this is a solution, what are the predictions I get? And if this is a solution, what are the predictions I get? And if that is a solution, what's the predictions I get? Because what you want to be able to do is see both how well this new scenario you've concocted explains the phenomena you're trying to explain, but you also want to see, but what other things will it predict? What else can I go out and look for and see, is this scenario still consistent with these other observations or do these other observations disfavor my scenario? Yes, exactly. And so, um, you know, this doesn't discount, for example, the possibility that direct collapse did, you know, did contribute to making like these intermediate mass black holes early enough in, um, in the universe. In fact, like there's, there's another paper by, um, by is it, it's you at all so like Feng or Fung at all um where oh. they where they uh yeah oh i was gonna say is that uh jonathan feng is that who you're talking it's about not, it's not jonathan feng who's actually at my school this is a uh, um wei Zhang. okay yeah wei i Zhang don't know feng. him see i have to i have to i have to get with it i'm uh i don't know everybody still He's at he's at Riverside. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and so, uh, <laughs> um, and and so, like in their paper, they introduced this sort of dissipation. Um, or wait, I might be, I might be I might be wrong. I think it might be it might be the other paper that that was with um, Hybo U. Um, yes, it's Isig et al. Sorry, it's important. <laughs> it was Isig et al. So so it's Ruben Isig. Um, um, who, where, where they introduce these dissipa dissipative self interactions, where dissipation actually speeds up core collapse. So yes, I know that we really need to get core collapse to happen pretty early in the universe. Actually, no, it's it's, it's a lot earlier than what I had than the first than the first. Um, okay, so you you're not talking about when reionization was almost complete, like 450 million years. You're talking early on, probably within the first 200 million years at least. Yes. Yes, it ha it has to be it has to be before that for sure. Yeah, yeah, 
Because that's mm -hmm. what's fascinating about that is we should see what we expect to see is a big explosion of first stars, you know, not the very first star you ever made in the universe, but a big explosion of stars that are forming from this pristine gas. Uh, we should get a big one about 200 to 250 million years after the Big Bang. And what's going to be very exciting about that is if the black holes formed first, which perhaps they could if they formed from a self-interacting dark matter, then you would expect to see some populations when your observations get good enough of stars forming for the first time where it's clear there's already a large seed black hole there versus if you have a population where stars are forming for the very first time, or rather I should say, wherever you see a seed black hole, you should already have stars that have lived and died. Right, exactly. And so these are kind of like like certain you know observational um, I guess signals that we can look for. Other things, of course, are because you know you'll have mergers and stuff like that. So we can use gravitational waves too to um, sort of you know uh, look for observational signals early in the universe. Um, and so I you know I want to I want to point out that that there are problems with this with this idea. So like, for example, in the Isig et al. paper, they, including the dissip dissipative interactions, so if you have a dissipation rather than just like um, elastic scattering, it can speed up core collapse significantly. However, like, it seems like no matter what they did, they were kind of, they, it, they were kind of stuck in this really small parameter space. And so... However, they did it with a constant cross a constant cross section rather a velocity dependent one, and so there are several things that we want to try to um, to do to see whether whether you know whether it's feasible or not. Um, but if it is, then you're getting like a twofold solution. You're not only solving or learning a little bit more about the particle physics of dark matter because we really don't know any of it. We have ideas, but we don't know any of it. But we would get that. And we'd have a solution to the supermassive black hole problem. No, and I think I think this is a really important thing because uh, this speaks to I think a larger issue is I think you have a very good handle that what you're doing um, what you're doing is like equivalent to playing in the sandbox where you're not saying okay. Dark matter has to be self-interacting, come hell or high water, and I'm going to prove it. What you're saying is, look, if we take cold collisionless dark matter, like the standard consensus model, we know it succeeds in all of these ways, but it doesn't quite succeed as well as we'd like in these ways. So what I want to do is I want to make a, I want to test something out. I want to see if I allow dark matter to interact at this level or in this way, then what's going to happen? Okay, if I want to help out the formation of, um, you know, low density in the center dark matter profiles on these small galactic scales, what are the what's the range of self interactions that I'm allowed? And if I want to help out the supermassive black hole problem, what are the range of things I can put in to help out? But then you start asking, okay, but then does anything pathological happen? Do I start accruing too much dark matter in the cores of stars? Do I start um, do I start having a cross-section that ruins my large-scale structure in the universe? Do I start, like, 
So basically what you're doing is you're saying, I, I have these knobs that I can turn up or down or on or off, and I want to see how they affect things. Can I find, you know, we call this parameter space, but that's really just saying like, okay, I'm going to vary multiple things at once and see how they fit in with all these different observations and constraints that I have. Can I go ahead and find an interesting place where everything fits better and if so then how can i go and look for that like i think what you're doing is vital because it's really exploring the ways the universe can possibly be but i think you also have this good recognition that what you're doing is speculative that what you're saying is look we're we're trying to tweak things and twist things to make them fit better than the consensus model but if I want the community to accept that this is the way things are, hey, if I if I myself want to accept this is the way things are, I need some good, compelling, strong evidence that this model works as good as the current model in all the places where the current model succeeds and that it also succeeds where the current model doesn't without having to add hundreds of extra parameters exactly and so um and this is this is exactly true mostly i would say for right now most this is mostly true for the case of whether self-interacting dark matter can produce like the intermediate mass black holes or not uh with regards to to self-interacting dark matter itself it's actually looking more and more viable to me and so i feel like it's a, it's more than just speculation like um because uh, be because it can explain things um, while while keeping while you know while saving all the successes that lambda CDM gives us, which is la lambda's dark energy and then CDM is cold dark matter, um, but also can solve other problems. But it's not only that; it's also the diversity issue, like the diversity problem in 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 galaxies. You cannot describe all density profiles or, or velocity curves with just cold dark matter. You just can't do it. Whereas with self-interacting dark matter, which encodes the baryon potential in it already, meaning that it takes into account whatever spread the baryons have, and then it can actually reproduce these, um, these density profiles. At, 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 you know, all, it can explain this, this diversity problem, in other words. And so I feel like that, that with self-interacting self dark matter itself is becoming more, more of like, um, I would say it's, it's, beca it's in my, in, yeah, it's becoming more viable, more and more viable. Yeah, certainly I think the community is definitely um, of the opinion that the problem of dark matter universality of this idea of a universal profile um, really appears to break down on small scales and that you know the big question is why and um, and self interactions between dark matter particles is certainly one possibility although for myself personally I don't think I'll be convinced until uh, there's a certain standard of evidence that's been that where that hurdle's been cleared, you know. Fair enough. I mean, that's and that's what we're that's what we're trying to, I guess, convince ourselves first, so that we can convince you. Yeah. <laughs> if I can convince myself, then I then I can move forward. Because at this point, it's true that I don't. I'm not going to say that 
it's definitely self-interacting dark matter. I can't say that. I don't know because it's possible that maybe maybe cold dark matter itself, cold collisionless dark matter, maybe it can explain things if we maybe we're missing something. Like maybe we need to we need to account for some 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 other phenomenon that we're not accounting for. Maybe our data isn't all that great because, mind you, we're looking into space, so we're looking really far at these at these really early times, and so. And then velocity dispersions on on like on their own, that's like also it has it has a range of error to it too, um, and they're very difficult to measure. And so like there's a host of things that can that that can be you know that that might that might resolve the issue, and then cold collisionless dark matter reigns supreme. But you know, but but until until I guess we know, which is I guess why everybody's working on on you know different aspects of it. And for me, that's that's the self-interacting dark matter part that I'm working on. Until we know, we can't really say. Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. I think you, you know, what you've started talking about, I think it brings up two really interesting points. And one is um, your responsibility you have as a scientist when you when you have a new idea, when you're exploring a new idea, when you're trying to test a novel hypothesis is you really want to try and knock down that hypothesis as hard as you can. You want to say, like, what are all the ways this could be wrong? What are all the things we would look for to try and show this isn't how nature is? And the harder you try and fail to knock it down, uh, the more sort of believable your hypothesis becomes, the more you start to believe in it. But I, I think that step is really important. And I wanted to say along with that, I know that you are also extremely passionate about science communication and the public understanding of science and opening up science uh, so that there are fewer barriers for everyone who wants to take part in it to participate. Um, I see these two things as going hand in hand, um, but I also see some people uh, out there, you know, communicating science to the public who are sort of trying actively to promote these speculative ideas that they haven't tried very hard to knock down. And, um, you know, I'd like to get sort of your thoughts on that. Are you sort of seeing the same things I am? And if so, how do you feel about that? Yeah, this is actually, uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's a really big issue that we face in science communication because as we are trying to make things, um, more accessible to the public, we also like, you know, in terms of, for example, media where buzzwords matter, you know, having like a, a, a catchy, a catchy like hook title that matters. So it's like, you know, quote unquote, um, clickbait. Um, and so I, I, I find that they do fall into that a lot. And I think that you can actually make titles or or you know like sort of you could present your your thing or your idea in a way that is exciting but doesn't you know kind of I guess it doesn't promote like these these ideas in a way that kind of just presents them like as this is what's happening like for example we may have just discovered the fifth dimension it's like what are you talking about no we didn't <laughs> somebody came up with an idea they wrote it down it makes sense maybe physically but we did not open up a fifth dimension it's just it, it, it didn't happen and so it's it is something that we need to we need to sort of take care of 
to make sure that we're not doing clickbaity things that make people or that mislead the public because then you have the public saying, oh my God, there's a fifth dimension and then womp, womp, womp. Sorry, that's not true. Oh, okay, this is boring then because I was, uh, that's wrong. Like, you know what I mean? So in fact, it would actually, in my opinion, turn the public away because the moment that they find out what's, what's true and that, that it's not that, then they're like, well, okay, forget this. But also, you're feeding misinformation. Like, you can present these topics super excitingly and say, look, somebody came up with this idea that if this and this happens, or whatever, if this and this is true, then we have this fifth portal, or like, this fifth dimension comes out. Like, that's cool, but like, we might have just discovered one. That's incorrect. And so, like, we need to be careful as a community to keep, I guess, the science as, while being exciting, keep it as accurate as possible. Yeah, and I think that's the sort of thing that's really going to take a, uh, it's really going to take scientists themselves as a community to say we need to lead the way because PR departments are going to push for maximum PR and journalists are going to push. And I say this as a journalist, even though I, I fight very hard not to do this myself, journalists are going to push to maximize clicks. And so, um, you know, I think if we want to create a culture where science is as respected as it ought to be, where people are aware of it, what it is, are appreciative for what it does, and know that when they hear that scientists find this thing, they know that scientists actually found this thing and not that someone is making a vainglorious grab for their own self-promotion. Um, you know, I, I think that we need to sort of be responsible as a community to sort of self-police just like we peer review. I, I would love to see, you know, I would love to see that every single science news story that anyone ever reported on, they they at least checked with an independent expert in the field who wasn't involved with the study to put things in their proper context. And that, that might be a bit too much to hope for. That might be a bit naive, but, um, but I really don't like this. Um, I really don't like this notion of if your science fails to convince other scientists on the merits of the science itself, let's go try our case in the court of public opinion, because that is an easy way to disingenuously convince people of something that we do not have the supporting evidence to reasonably conclude. Yes, that's, that's actually, I think, very dangerous as well, because you're going to the public who looks to you for the science. And so if you go to the public as a scientist, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're an authority in that field and you present this idea to them and it sounds great, then, you know, they will run with it for the most part. And so I think it's really, I, I, I agree with you there is that it's, re it's really important to speak to different people in that community rather than just like one person who's trying to tell their own idea what they would think about that as well to see sort of what the consensus is around it. That's a really good, that's a really good idea. I like it. Yeah. And I know you also do your own outreach. I know you have astropartigirl.com. I know you have an Instagram. I know you have a TikTok, and I know you're very active on Twitter. Um, 
why what is it that makes you so passionate about communicating science to the public and you know as you sort of embark down this path of becoming a professional scientist and also uh, becoming a more prominent science communicator, um, do you have any vision of where this might lead for you personally? Yes. Okay. So let's start with why I do this. Okay. Why do I do science communication? Okay. Like when I, when I think about stuff like dark matter and my mind gets blown because I know that in this room there's dark matter right now, it's passing through me all the time. Um, or if I, if I read about something where, for example, you know, we're, we're under this impression where most massive stars uh, will explode in supernovae and then become black holes, where there's a, there's a range of, of stars that actually just explode in supernovae but don't form black holes because they don't collapse and these things blow my mind. I want the public to know because these are the things that that are that that captivate me to want to do more in the field. It's like when I when I'm in awe, then I want to do more. Then I want to learn more. And maybe you know, um, even though it's it might be it might be like difficult to to get the physics of something, I can overcome that because I love this stuff and my mind is blown. And I think that we can do that with with people as well. Because it's often the way that something is presented to you, how like that that gives you the like sort of impression of you know well that's that's a bit too hard or that's dry that's boring like there's nothing in the world that you cannot present in a way that will be boring you can you can present anything in a way that will sound boring just do it dryly and that's it and that's typically what people get out of physics is that you know they had a high school teacher who was just kind of dry in the way that they taught and so and you know and then of course we have this this societal thing where we which we need to break that like math is hard and stuff so you're already going into it with this and then on top of it you get somebody who's dry who doesn't captivate you which you know and 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 you and you lose people that way you lose potential physicists um and you know they they might they might have want they might have like become a physicist otherwise and so that's why i like that's one of the reasons why i do it but also just because i want people to just understand that this stuff is so cool and what we can learn about it and like how vast our universe is and how much we really don't know yet i just i want to i want people to to be as mind blown as me to want to look up at the sky and you know think about what's going on out there. And so like the, the, where I would see myself going with this as a science communicator, I want, I mean, I really would, would love to do like to host a TV show or something because I just love talking about this stuff and I am, I have no problem being on camera. In fact, I like it. And so, um, I just feel like I can convey that to the world. And I really, 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 really think that people will love all this stuff and like, and that I can share my passion for this and um, and just 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 get people interested in it and get people loving it. You know, I, I don't think there are very many things more noble than breaking down barriers, increasing excitement and sharing your love and knowledge for something that you have worked so hard for with everyone else that maybe maybe they can share in it too as you take them along for the journey.
I I think that's really noble. I absolutely understand where you're coming from. And, uh, you know, may we as a society move forward and value this just as much as as anyone ever had. May we as a whole value it just as much as you and I and individuals do. Um, I want to ask you, because thank you, this has been a wonderful conversation, and thank you for sharing your knowledge and perspective with us. Um, is there anything, Sophia, that you would like to leave our listeners with as a final message before we say goodbye? Yeah, curiosity is is something that will lead you to things that that you might not have thought of before. And so, like, be curious, ask questions, um, look to look to people who are who are because now now you have access to people on Twitter, um, on social media in general all the time. And so you can learn from people do that because there's so much cool stuff out there. And I'm telling you, you will learn things that will just change your perspective even on things. So I want everybody, I just really want everybody to do that and just embrace the universe. There's so much out there and we don't know, we don't know a lot of it. I love that message. Yeah. <laughs> I love that message. I mean, what, what more can you ask for than there's a whole universe out there to explore and enjoy and let's all take that journey together. Yes, that was, you put it perfectly. <laughs> well, I've, I've <laughs> been doing this a little while, um, but uh, I've had a little bit of practice and, and the more practice you get, the better you get at it. I, I've been following you for some time. I'm so pleased that this year we've gotten to meet each other at least virtually and uh, you know, I, I look forward to uh, watching you as you continue to learn and evolve and grow. I look forward to seeing what you accomplish and who else you bring with you along the way. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right, Sophia, thank you for joining us. Uh, if you want to follow her, you can give her a follow on Twitter at AstroPartiGirl or follow her uh, on Instagram, TikTok, or uh, at her website at AstroPartiGirl.com. And I want to thank everyone for tuning in. It's the support of our Patreon followers that make the Starts With a Bang podcast possible. And I'd like to thank everyone donating at the $5 a month level and above. Thanks go to Thomas Moore, Chad Marler, Jeffrey David Maricini, Samir Kumar, Matt Conroe, Chris Shaw, Tim Graham, Frank, John Methot, Aaron Weiss, Sean Foley, Pete Smoyer, Chris Chikuta, Stefan Bernegger, Pierre Franson, John Van Balaguyan, Charles Buchanan, Dominic Turpin, Hellbender, Punitive Expedition, Pavel Zuzelski, Rob Hansen, Pedro Texera, Laird Whitehill, George Church, Vlad Pashkovsky, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Jens Koger, Randall Slimak, Mike, Ahmed Lee Kamsi, Alex Fedotov, Jerry Wilterding, Sean Foley, Flo, John Kozura, Jose Enrique, Rafal Wojcik, Brian Terry, Patrick Dennis, Denier, Danny, Marcelo Barnaba, Mark Armstrong, Chris Hilly, Jason McCampbell, Weller Tractor Salvage, Yanko S., Philip Francis, William Vanden Heuvel, David Wolf, Neil Flood, James Bryson Hyatt, Adam Robinson, Chuck Dannon, Paul Lester, Lalina Menenti, Gabriel Nader, Tim Hines, Sam Terzakian, Jeff Renike, Christoph Hip, Rushin Shah, Inga 
Strumke, Lockwood Carlson, Alan Parikh, William Blair, Jason Luttrell, Paulina Barron, Dick Pills, Adrian Griffiths, Hannah Kahn, Andrew Jason, Mark Langston, Arnulfo Zepeda, Tom Van Scotter, Dana Bridges, Kelly Kudrick, Richard Schwartz, Darren Redfern, Mark Bloor, Fraser Kane, Steve Schaber, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Rich Weigel, Bob Simone, James Nance, Tomas All, Glenn McDavid, David Taschioni, Radek Nespida, Heather, Herbert Coe, Nathan Hanna, Brainwise, Ben Head, and Tomas Walgren. Thanks everyone for tuning in, and we'll see you next time back here for more Starts With a Bang. <laughs> <laughs>